Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health providers. Today, we are speaking with Colin Carr. He is the CEO of the Carr Group, C-A-R-R, and they are real estate professionals within the behavioral health space. So actually pretty interesting information on purchasing and leases and decision-making processes all around the whole um, real estate conversation for providers, which is often a tricky one. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I do want to hear from our sponsors, Track 9. As all regular listeners of the show are aware, I'm a huge advocate of clinical outcomes tracking. So I'm proud to have my favorite tracking software, Track9, as a sponsor of this show. Track9 Informatics is a measurement-based care and data analytics tool for substance use disorder and mental health treatment across the continuum of care. It assesses a combination of pathology and resilience factors scientifically proven to be most critical to client success. Track9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating various client symptoms so you can match the clinician best suited to the client's specific needs. Track9 also provides much-needed feedback-informed care loops to help clinicians themselves improve. What's really interesting is that Track9 learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure and provides treatment failure risk alerts, which can help lower AMAs by as much as 39%. If you listen to my podcast with owner Jared Dempsey, he talks about how different facilities achieve different results based on internal talent, systems, and the unique characteristics of their patient population. Track9 displays program performance versus national averages, which you can use to identify improvement opportunities and support payer negotiations. To learn more, visit www.track9.com. That's T-R-A-C and the number nine. So again, today on the show, we've got Colin Carr. Uh, He brings a lot of real estate expertise in healthcare overall. So they do a lot of behavioral health facilities as well as just standard healthcare. And I have to say that real estate is one of my weaker areas of understanding. So I was happy to have him on and just share a lot of advice. We've done sale leasebacks before with Patrick Haynes, um, but we have not done anything around just kind of pure real estate purchasing and leasing. And he had a lot of really surprising and useful information around a lot of concessions that you can get, like things like free rent with leases that I wasn't even aware were possible, even when renegotiating the lease. A lot of conversation around what to look for in a good purchase and how to think about structuring deals and who needs to be on the team or concerns around zoning. So it was a really interesting conversation. I think you guys will find a value in it, especially if you are looking at expansion and growth. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Colin, appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, You just want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your business? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. So uh, our company is called CAR. We are a commercial real estate firm that only represents healthcare practices. So most commercial real estate brokers do a lot of landlord, a lot of seller work, and they work for anyone. Uh, Our company is niched in the fact that we are only in healthcare and we only work on the provider or owner side. So anything real estate related, whether it's behavioral health, dentists, physicians, veterinarians, chiropractors, uh, and we're only on the, the healthcare side. So 
if you need uh, to renegotiate a lease, if you want to buy a building, if you want to uh, scale additional locations, you want to relocate, anything real estate-wise we handle and work on. And we started in Colorado in 2009, and we are now in uh, over 40 states, and we represent uh, several thousand healthcare practices per year. So a big question that always comes up in these kind of situations is, you know, why would someone work with your team rather than in-house or local agents in each target market? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so first of all, we have local agents across the country, so we've got the market expertise. But the reason that you want to go with an outside expert um, is because we know the market. You know, you might be savvy in your your business or your practice, but you know, are you a market expert? Are you negotiating with with literally dozens or hundreds of landlords or sellers every year in that market? And if the answer is no, then you're probably not going to be the best equipped to handle that transaction. Um, another big one is even if you were, what's your time worth? The average transaction in healthcare that we work on takes 40 to 50 hours of expert time. And so if you are putting that into being a real estate expert instead of in your, your company, your business, your practice, what's the, what's the loss there? How much more could you have done in your actual business? Um, another one is, is how do you assemble the right team? Like, do you have the, the top architects, contractors, uh, you know, different people that are part of the process? Um, we do. That's all we do is, is work on these transactions. Um, another one's credibility. When you go up against a, a savvy landlord or a savvy seller and they're talking to you, 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 could, be, you could be an unbelievable expert or stone-cold killer in your industry or field, but they're going to look at you as a landlord and say, this person doesn't know the commercial real estate market. They know their business or company, but they don't know if what I'm saying is as aggressive as they could get down the street or across the street or in a different sub-market. So you don't get the same level of respect. And the, the proof of that is, uh, every, you know, every Fortune 500 company has outsourced people they work with or they have a team of in-house experts. So if you have a real estate department inside your company and that person is truly an expert, fantastic. But even in those scenarios, most of the time, you know, those companies are still using local market experts in conjunction with their in-house team. So it's time savings, it's financial savings of better deals, it's, it's assembling the best team. Um, and it's just having the best, it's having the best game plan when you go to the market. Okay. So when we were talking earlier, you mentioned about some common mistakes and you've seen examples of people paying, you know, really astronomically higher leases or, you know, clauses in there that weren't necessarily beneficial to the buyer or the leasee. Um, do you just want to walk through a couple of common mistakes that you see buyers or renters making? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So yeah, let's start with one of the things you just said is I, uh, like on a lease renewal, let's say, um, very rarely do the preset or pre-negotiated lease renewal option terms make sense. In almost every scenario, that lease option is going to be above market, and it's not going to contain any of the concessions that a brand new lease would contain. And so here's an example. You sign a five or 10-year lease, that lease ratchets up every single year, annual increases, and then by the time you get to that end of the five or 10-year term, the lease rate you're paying is above what a brand new tenant would receive if they did a brand new deal. So uh, let's start with mistake number one. If you exercise a lease renewal um, at the pre-negotiated set terms without going to the market, the odds that you're going to be above market in your lease rate is probably about 95%. So huge mistake doctors, healthcare providers, investors make is they say, oh, well, we already have pre-negotiated terms that we negotiated 10 years ago. We're going to exercise that option very rarely, I'd say less than 5% of the time, is that going to be a good deal for you? Um, next mistake in the same category 
uh, are, well, let's say you exercise that option. What type of free rent package did you get? How much tenant improvement or renovation allowance did you get? Well, very rarely on lease renewals do people actually go after those points. Yet the reality is if you move out of that space, that landlord is going to give the next tenant a huge free rent package, a huge TI package. They're going to pay commissions, et cetera. And so why as a established uh, tenant would you accept less favorable terms than a brand new, than a brand new tenant? You've been paying rent faithfully for five, seven or 10 years. Why would you take a worse deal than a stranger that's never given this landlord $1? That's a huge mistake people make. Another one is a lot of people are, are doing deals where they just pick one property and they negotiate whether it's a new a new space uh, or a renewal, and they're not negotiating competitively with with three or four uh, landlords or sellers, you know, residential real estate you pick the house you want and you submit an offer, and if they sign the contract you're under contract. Commercial real estate you should be negotiating on a non-binding basis. You should be looking at three or four properties that you're actually trading paper with simultaneously because that's the only way to determine if you really have an aggressive deal or not. If you just pick one landlord or one seller and submit offers, you don't know how much more aggressive other landlords or sellers in that market would be. And if you happen to find a landlord that is not leveraged, is strong in cash, they might not be as motivated as a landlord that is leveraged that, uh, that has more vacancy or has a higher motivation. And so you, you don't get those dynamics if you're just negotiating with one person. So that's a big one. Another big one is just you have somebody that's done real estate in your company uh, before, and that person just takes on the task because they're capable of getting a deal done. There's a huge difference between getting a deal done and actually getting the best terms possible. So just because somebody can do a deal doesn't mean it's going to get done right or with the best terms. Like, for instance, I can extract my own tooth if I wanted to, but I, there's probably a better game plan to go to an oral surgeon. I can get the same result but it's going to come with, with some additional pain and some discomfort and, and a worse outcome. And that's a funny example, but it's what happens with a lot, lot of private equity firms, a lot of investors, a lot of companies. They just have someone that says, oh, I've done real estate before. So-and-so knows what they're doing. Doesn't mean you're going to get the best choice possible. So, I mean, I keep on going, but that's four or five right there that a lot of people make mistakes on. Yeah, so those are good. I think it's helpful, and especially the idea about being able to renegotiate. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that you can negotiate those terms and get in some improvement costs, like you said, for the TI. And that free rent component is big. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize that you can usually get a couple of free months rent. Uh, you were also talking about different terms in the leases and this assumption that, well, if we get, you know, X amount of free months of rent, then they're just going to raise the cost overall for us. But you actually said in a previous conversation that that's not accurate. Do you want to go into a little bit of detail there? Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. So um, let me clarify that. So a lot of people think if a landlord gives me a concession, like let's say they give me free rent, like you mentioned, or if they give me money to renovate my space, a lot of people um, mistake that concession for, uh, just a higher lease rate. They think, all right, if they give me $100,000 worth of money to improve my space, they're going to put $100,000 into the lease rate, tack on an interest rate, and I'm going to pay a higher lease rate with interest. And that's not always the case. The reality is most landlords build in a certain amount of money to do a deal, whether it's for, for, for build-out allowance, whether it's for a free rent package, whether it's for capital improvements. And they're not going to go below a certain lease rate, whether you have no concessions or you have a couple hundred thousand dollars in concessions. And so a lot of tenants say, hey, 
don't give me any TI allowance. Don't give me any free rent. Don't give me any concessions. Just give me the lowest lease rate possible. And I'll just pick a number. Let's say that it's $30 a square foot. They think that they're saving money when in, when in reality, you probably could have gotten $30 a square foot with free rent, with a huge TI allowance, with other concessions. And so chasing the lowest lease rate or chasing no concessions uh, can be a very, very bad game plan. And a lot of people lose a ton of money there. A better game plan would be negotiate a deal with concessions, with free rent, with TI allowance, and then say, if I didn't take any of these, what's the lowest lease rate you'd go? And if you do that, typically you find out that they do not translate dollar for dollar. You will end up with a better deal with concessions than with no concessions, believe it or not. Ah, that's really interesting. All right, so as a behavioral health provider, like trying to scope out new locations, what are the most important things that they should be thinking about or looking for? You know, every, every group's going to have different interests as far as the different demographics, the different uh, ancillary practices or providers nearby. Uh, what we do when we're working with providers is what's important to you, you know, what's the demographic, what's the thoroughfare of the area, what's the submarket, and then you can get into different areas where different, different counties, different states uh, nearby have much better programs for reimbursements, et cetera. For instance, we talk about this. You know, you could be in the greater Philadelphia market and say, hey, if we just push over into Delaware, our reimbursement rate could be three or four times higher for this situ this medical situation. And so we, we partner with the providers on that. We take a lot of cues from them as far as what they're looking for. And then, you know, you've got concepts like access, parking, signage, um, you know, window lines, natural light, whatever is most important to the actual owner of the group, we, we take the cues on. And then um, we don't try to determine that for the group and most brokers should not do that, but they should be asking the right questions. And then they try to whittle it down to the options that best fit that requirement. All right. And then obviously the main question that comes up all the time is purchasing versus leasing. So how do you guys think about that issue? Um, our, our take uh, for any, any person that asks that question is we've got to look at both options. And, and here's what that looks like. There's times when there are no options to purchase. And so you could say, I have to own. And if there's no existing buildings that fit your criteria, your only option would be to buy a piece of land, develop your own building. Another question we have is, do you have two, two and a half years to wait? Or do you want to be in a new space within six to nine months? So we, we start every requirement by saying, listen, do you want to own? Do you want to lease? If you want to pursue one more, that, that's great. But our take is let's look at both. Let's go look at the top options to lease. Let's compare those with the top options to purchase. And then you can find yourself in a scenario where there's no lease options that meet your requirement or no purchase ones. That makes your decision a lot better. In the scenario where both options are available, and then we're getting down to the economics. We're getting down to the idea of, do you have the, do you have the capital that's needed to inject for the down payment? Um, are you able to obtain the right financing? Does it make sense for you? What's the cash flow effect? Like if, if we purchase over here and lease over here, if the purchase costs you an extra 25,000 a month or 5,000 a month or whatever the numbers are, does that make sense for your business? Is that, is that reduced cash flow going to help propel you forward or slow you down? And if you have unlimited funds, then owning, owning is phenomenal. If you, if it's close, let's, let's say it's the same number to lease or purchase. It's a no brainer. Then, then purchasing is going to be a tremendous investment because you get to pay down principal, get tax deductions, control your future a little bit easier, et cetera. Other considerations, you know, if you want to be in a certain location with a certain size facility for maybe five years, but then you have plans to scale way beyond there, 
maybe leasing for the first five years makes more sense so that you can get into a much larger facility in the future. So there's all the questions like, do you like the properties just personally and emotionally? Can you see yourself here? Is it even available if you wanted to lease or purchase or you locked into one option? But if, if you like both property options, you can lease or purchase, you want to stay there long-term, it meets your needs in short-term, long-term, then it's all about economics. What are the tax deductions? What are the depreciation? What's the principal pay down? What type of financing do you have? And you can, you can break all these considerations down crystal clear in a really legitimate purchase versus lease spreadsheet. And, and it'll spit out the numbers and tell you this deal makes sense or doesn't make sense. And then you can make a decision pretty quickly when you have those numbers. Okay, so that's super helpful. So let's start with the purchases. And you already mentioned a couple of considerations in there. Anything else, like when we're looking at a loan for purchase rates, arm length, anything that you have seen be a sticking point or particularly critical for behavioral health providers? Yeah, I mean, I would say this. Um, the, the current economy, I mean, yes, they're raising interest rates right now. They're still, they're still unbelievable rates. They're, I mean, they're not as low as they were four months ago, but it's, besides that, it's all-time lows in the history of financing. So interest rates, you know, lower the rate, the, the higher the value, the more money you can, you can get into a project with. Uh, what's the amount of money you're going to come out of pocket, not just to buy the property, but also to renovate it? You know, when you lease, landlords give you money to renovate the space. So you're coming out of pocket more if you purchase. You've got to factor that in. Um, do you have the bandwidth and wherewithal to manage the property if you buy it? Is it going to be easier for you to have a third-party management company? That's a consideration. What's your exit strategy? You know, if you're looking at building something up and then selling it, are the typical buyers in your, in your specialty or industry, are they – more likely to acquire the real estate or are they more likely to say we don't want the real estate we just want the business and then if that's the case are you comfortable holding the real estate um, if you're not there's a lot of investors that would swallow the type of investment up as well but what's your exit strategy that's a big one uh, but yeah i mean it comes down to cash flow principal pay down tax deductions uh, etc Previously on the show, we had an individual that did a lot of sale leasebacks in the space. And so do you ever partner with those or look at that and say, okay, you're looking at purchasing this, maybe there's a bit more risk there, but if you should decide to sell it, we have companies we work with on the sale leaseback. And is that something that's worth considering in the decision-making process? It is absolutely. So there's a lot of money to be made in the sale leaseback world. And I mean, we tell people all the time, real estate's got to be secondary to your business. And so if the real estate helps your business, then that's great. If the real estate is going to put you in, in an inferior location in a worse property and it's going to hurt your business, like don't, don't make a real estate play that's going to hurt your business. If the real estate play helps your business and adds to it, um, you've got a lot of options. If you want to be a long-term owner and operator, um, then, then you're going to be good to go. If you decide to sell the business portion and you want to hold the real estate, if you like the buyer of the practice or the business, then great. Then you've got an annuity or cash flow indefinitely for the 10, 15 years that you write the lease for. And then you do have the, uh, the, the parachute or the eject button at any time. If you want to sell it, there are a lot of companies that uh, love to swallow up sale leasebacks, a lot of investment groups that do that. And so the, the focus there has got to be, we've got to have a good long-term lease. We're looking for a minimum seven, ideally a 10 or 15 year lease. We're looking for lease rates that are commensurate with the property and the business, and that makes sure it cash flows properly. And if you have those elements there, then, then a sale leaseback can get you a, a very healthy return on your real estate very quickly. 
Okay. And then you just curious question on there from a risk standpoint, I would assume that, you know, if you have a long-term lease like that, if there is a, if the business ends up going bankrupt, are they still liable for those leases? Or is there usually a clause in there saying, Hey, you know, the business is no longer an ongoing concern. You know, we're able to maybe get out of the lease. It really, it really depends on the, the size of the group. Uh, there's some landlords that require a personal guarantor um, or personal guarantee from the, the main owner or from the main owners. It depends on if it's a large investment group, they might make them collateralize it. So if it's a smaller investor that, uh, that owns it or a smaller operator, they might require a personal guarantee, into which case if that business goes under, the landlord could still have recourse coming against that individual. Most of the savvier groups out there are going to limit their liability just to the entity that runs the business. And so if that business goes under, there's really nothing to go after or collect from them. So you're going to get into personal guarantees. You're going to get into corporate guarantees. You're going to get into collateral. It all depends on how much risk the landlord has, how much money they're putting into the space. So yeah, I mean, you want to be very intentional on that though. If you're a smaller operator, smaller owner, and and, and they're going to make you re- uh, do a personal guarantee, you've got to be a lot more careful. Okay. We also previously talked about having a real estate attorney, you know, coming to the table and helping out with these purchases. What does a good real estate attorney actually do? What do they bring to the table? Yeah, a good real estate attorney is going to do a couple of things. Number one, they're going to make sure that what was negotiated um, in the non-binding negotiation phase of the deal, when you're looking at letters of intent or request for proposal, they're going to make sure that what you negotiated or what your broker negotiated for you actually makes its way into the lease. Because in that scenario, you're negotiating maybe a two or three page document that's going to morph into an 80 page lease that's a legal contract. So they're going to make sure that what you think you're getting is what you're actually getting. And then they're going to make sure that your interests are protected because there's uh, dozens of clauses in leases that are standard concepts, but the way they're written can vary dramatically. And so that attorney is going to make sure that the clauses that are in the lease are not, uh, are, are not too egregious. They're always going to favor the landlord because it's their asset. They, they control the dynamics of it for the most part. But there's, there's a balance to where it becomes more fair. So anytime you look at a lease, the first thing out of everyone's mouth, if they've never read a lease before, is they're going to say, wow, this is in favor of the landlord. And the answer is, well, of course it is. It's no different than if you get a credit card, you'd say, wow, this is in favor of the credit card company. Yes, they're the one giving you the money. If you've ever read a student loan document, if you ever read a mortgage document, it's always in the favor of the person giving the asset or giving the money. So it's going to be in favor of the landlord, but a good real estate attorney will make sure that it is more fair for the tenant and that that you're protected in different areas. Like what if you do want to sell the business? What if you need to sublease? What if you need to close down? Uh, Who's, who's maintaining the property? If you need new capital improvements, you need a new roof or parking lot. Is that on the tenant? Is that on the landlord? And so there's other things you can get into that are kind of the nitty gritty, but they're very important to have an attorney review. And I would equate it to an insurance policy. Like nobody wants to carry an insurance policy on their home for three, four thousand dollars a year. But if your basement floods, do you want to cut a check yourself for a hundred thousand, or do you want the insurance company to give you a hundred thousand? When it comes to lease you might not want to pay three to $5,000 to have an attorney review it or more depending on the deal. But would you rather pay $3,000 and know that you're protected to the best of your ability? Or, or do you want to risk maybe having an issue come up and you have to cut a check for $200,000 because you messed up in an area? It's pretty, pretty easy answer. What about title companies? You know, is it worth shopping around for title companies or just go with, you know, whatever's kind of cheapest or recommended by someone else? 
It's an interesting question. In, in, in certain states, the seller can pick the title company if you're purchasing. In other states, they make the buyer purchase. Um, in other states, they say that the real estate broker has to give you two or three options and cannot determine that for you or uh, favor one or the other. And so each state's different. And then you also find yourself in states that don't have title companies, like North Carolina, for instance, uses attorneys or closing specialists. And so there's different terminologies there. But bottom line is you want to find a title company that is very reputable, that's been a long, around for a long time, um, that has great ratings. And then um, it's not uncommon to get a price or a quote or a bid, if you will, from one or two um, and then go from there. Okay. What about zoning? Zoning is always a big issue in behavioral health, uh, especially for like MAT clinics, for example, they have a lot of issues with NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard kind of stuff. How do you guys look at zoning? Do you support in zoning in the work that you do? Yeah. So that's a great question. We do preliminary work and then we are always going to have an architect actually verify it. And here's why it's not uncommon to have an online um, county assessor website uh, have the wrong zoning. It's not uncommon to call a building department and ask them a question and say, hey, is this zoning allowed? And they'll say yes or no, but they didn't tell you, well, yes, it is, but it's only if you get a special use permit or if you go through three neighborhood hearings or what have you. And so it's one of those things where, uh, you know, you can do preliminary research as a real estate professional, which we do, um, but you are always going to want to have an architect actually dig into the actual code. That's, that's their language. That's their world. And a lot of times they'll actually even go down to building departments or get someone that they know personally on the phone, walk through the code and make sure there's no surprises. And then what every person should do, whether you have a real estate broker, whether you're doing it yourself, doesn't matter, get a letter in writing from your architect, which states, here's the zoning, here's your use, and here's why it is or is not allowed with different exceptions, because then you're, you're putting liability on the architect and it helps to reinforce your position in moving forward. Do you have any specific uh, considerations you have people look at around cost or like the time related to zoning, especially like if they have to rezone something, what should timelines be projected to look like? Yeah, that's a really good question too, because uh, there's a huge variable in, in what's uh, required if you have to go into review. So there's concepts called administrative reviews where uh, it just literally is paperwork being filed and, and then they say, does this check the box, yes or no? And then you can go into a full uh, like neighborhood review or a full city council review. And so we've been through both. We've had ones before where literally it says, hey, it's use by right, you have to file this form. It's a use by administration, excuse me, administrative approval, fill out a form. And then literally two, three weeks later, you get a response. There's other scenarios where it's a full, a full dynamic review where you have to go through and you have to post like on the site with the public sign, you have to go through two or three neighborhood reviews where you have like Zoom calls or you go to the city council or the town and then they can come in and they can protest it. Uh, and then the city council votes on it and then the building department votes on it. And those things can literally take six to nine months or longer. And so it's the same thing with an architect giving you a preliminary approval or denial on the use. If it's approved, is it a, is it a use by right? Nothing needs to be filed there. Or if not, what hoops do I have to jump through? And then that's why you want to have a very good architect that you're partnered with because they will take you through the process of, of getting things approved or entitled or whatever it is. But yeah, long story short there, it could be no paperwork. 
it could be a three or four work week process of one or two forms, or it could literally be a, a nine to 12 month process and four or five large meetings. And at any time, someone could just strike you down saying, no, we don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I would caution there too. I mean, we've seen a couple providers really struggle and it comes down to sometimes not the zoning, but it's just really the neighbors and the local council in particular. And so my recommendation is always make sure that you have local council buy-in before you start a process or make a purchase, because it doesn't matter, frankly, even if you're zoned for the services that you're providing and the neighbors raise a stink or, and they have good connections with the council or the local town council doesn't like it. I mean, regardless of kind of your legal prerogative, they will make your life hell and put up every roadblock possible um, to not have you open in that space. And so I just always recommend, you know, look at the zoning and make sure it's appropriate, but then build relationships with the local town council before finalizing a deal. I don't know if you have any comments or experience with similar issues. No, I would agree 100%. If you're going into a scenario where there's, let's say, seven city or town council um, and, and you don't know where they stand on concepts. Uh, I mean, you're putting all of your your fate into their hands. And and we've been through reviews before where um, it, it still had to go through a review, even though it was a use by right, you know, for like a, a standard property office or retail or whatever it is or medical. And we've had we've had city council or town council say, you know, we're going to vote against it because we'd like there to be a park there instead. And and we're all sitting in the room saying there's a gas station next door, there's a 7-Eleven next door. Like it's not going to become a third acre of a park. Like it's going to be a commercial building and this is a use by right. And and they have no legal position for that, but they just say, you know, I'm going to vote against it. Like I've been in votes before where they say, you know, it it still passes maybe five to two or four to three, but if one person switched over with just some ludicrous position, you could, you can lose your standing in there. So yes, if you can meet with them, talk to them, talk, you can talk to building departments, mayors, depends on the size of the community for sure. But if it's not just a yes, you're clear, move forward. You definitely want to have uh, some some preliminary work done ahead of time. Yeah, agreed. Because they can throw up roadblocks you wouldn't believe. You know, they can make claims about the roads leading up to the facility and put up a roadblock there or utilities or just, you know, have a lot of um, negative public opinion if they get enough people rallying behind it. So, um, yep. yeah. Yeah, good. All right, uh, let's go into leases then. So we've kind of covered the purchase aspect of things. Let's do new leases first. So what factors should one consider when looking at a brand new lease? You know, type of the lease, terms, comps, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the longer the lease, the better the concessions you're going to receive. So um, when you're going into a lease negotiation, if you're going to be willing to sign, let's say, a 7- or 10-year lease or a 12 or 15, you're going to get a higher level of concessions than if you said, I only want this, this space for three to five years. If you're looking at the lease term, is this space going to accommodate your needs for the next, you know, five, seven, 10 years? Is it short-term, long-term? So what's your current needs versus the future needs? Um, next is just uh, how much money do you want to put into the deal? Would, would you rather, would you rather uh, go for a longer-term lease, get higher concessions and, and, and put less money for your own build-out in there? Um, again, everyone's got kind of a different threshold as far as how much cash on hand versus how much the landlord will contribute. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you get flexibility with leases, you get landlords contributing more, you get the benefits of the fact that you're, you should not be paying for anything during the build out. So if it takes six months to build it out, it takes, you know, maybe a couple months to get up and running an operation the way you want to. Can we get six months of build out? Can we get three or four months free upon opening? Um, those are huge concessions and that helps your cash flow. So a, a lot of things that leasing deal with, with reducing the money out of pocket, giving you more flexibility for the future, 
um, improving your cash flow, and those things are very valuable. Anything else? So you mentioned a couple there, but any other concessions that people should be looking at, or maybe they don't know, know or aware that it's an option with uh, a lease agreement? Yeah, it depends on the type of property, but it, it's fairly common to be able to get an option to purchase. Like if you think this facility could meet your needs long-term or the building, whether it's a single tenant or maybe it's multi-tenant, but it gives you the room to grow, um, negotiating an option to purchase, that's great. Um, you know, ne- negotiating the ability to sell the practice through a really, um, a really savvy assignability clause, that's important. And again, not just having an assignability clause, but having the right one, because there's a huge difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, those are, those are the ones that stick out to me the most. What about rate increases? So, I mean, generally an annual rate increase is pretty standard. I'm sure it varies state by state, locale by locale, but do you have any general guidance in terms of what those should look like or how people should be thinking about them? Yeah, it's very it's very uncommon to see a lease without an annual increase. I would say, you know, for every 100 leases we see, I'd say 98 to 99 probably have an increase. Sometimes you see landlords that will do a flat lease for five years, and then they'll have a larger like 10% bump in year six or 10. But most leases are going to have a two, three or 4% increase. And uh, every market's different. So typically, uh, if you get into a sub market or a certain part of a larger metro area, it's going to be kind of an industry standard where most of the properties are 3% or 4%. The only way to know that is to look at multiple properties, as I mentioned earlier. And then it's definitely negotiable. If you can take an annual increase from three and a half down to three, I mean, that's, that's a sizable amount of money that you're going to save when you add that up with the increases from years two through 10. So little, little adjustments make a, make a big difference and it's worth negotiating on that deal point for sure. What about types of lease? So, you know, have like a triple net or a gross or an absolute net. Do you have any recommendations or guidance around the type of lease? You know, I really don't because um, there's, there's so many variables now of leases that you can have a triple net lease where you have to pay utilities and janitorial, and you're also responsible for capital improvements, or you could have a triple net lease where it's also built in there. You could have a full service gross lease where um, you have less responsibilities or more. And so um, we're in a day and age now where just because they say it's a, it's a triple net versus a full service or absolute gross, believe it or not, they're, they're putting things in or taking things out that, that change the definition of it. So you, you, they might say, well, it's a, it's a gross lease where there's only one number, but if any of the expenses go up, they make you pay for the, the full increase. Um, or you could have a triple net lease where you think you're paying two different numbers, which you are, but you're still paying for any increase. And so just because they call it an absolute or they call it triple net um, doesn't mean that it's what you think it is. And so again, another great reason to have a really good real estate attorney, just so that you understand your obligations uh, and liability. So based on that, it sounds like it would be accurate to say it doesn't really matter the type of lease per se. It's just really the, the details and the clauses built into the lease, regardless of what they're calling it. Exactly. Because you could have a scenario where they say, well, hey, just so you know, um, in this lease, um, you have to pay all the utilities and the janitorial and the maintenance costs separately. And you think, oh, that's extra cost. But the other lease you're looking at, they say, hey, just so you know, all those costs are included, but you're still paying them either way. And if they go up, you're paying the increase. And so um, some of it's semantics. You can get to a place where, you know, this lease rate's $30 a square foot. This one's 26. So you think, well, 26 is better, but you might be paying another four or five dollars a square foot in, in individual costs. It could be net neutral. So th- th- you don't want to get caught up by the face rate. What about the, the type of owner? Do you have any guidance considering, you know, is it an individual 
that owns this commercial property, it's a big REIT or some other investor group. Does that change your recommendation at all? You know, um, it, it, it honestly does not. What I care more about is the reputation. You, you can find there's some REITs that, that are phenomenal. They have local management that do an outstanding job. They're responsive. They have, you know, they have day porters. They have property managers. They have maintenance groups. And if you contact them, they are on the spot, and their response time is outstanding. And then you can have that same thing with individual owners. You know, you can get people that have really bad managers that are terrible, that don't respond. So, you know, for me, it's really who's managing it. Great way to know this, if it's a multi-tenant building, is just go talk to other tenants there and just say, hey, how long have you been here? Um, how would you describe the responsiveness of the, the property manager, the day porter, you know, whoever it is that you want to get information on? Uh, how would you describe the landlord to work with uh, when issues come up? Because issues always come up in every real estate deal you do. It's going to be an issue. Um, so to me, I, I'm really weighing heavily on the response. Like I'm in Denver as an example. I've personally done well over a thousand deals myself. And there's individual owners that are horrendous, individual owners that are phenomenal. And so what's the reputation of the owner? How do they have it managed? What's the response time? And you can get great information from other people that are in their property. Or if it's a single tenant property, find out what other properties they own and then go ask those people. They will give you information too. They'll, they'll, you're not cold calling them asking if they want to buy a box of oranges. Like you're, you're walking in saying, Hey, would you do me the same respect that you would want? They'll give you that information. Ah, good advice. Uh, last question I think on my end is, I know you guys don't do, you're talking about the deal and not necessarily post deal, but do you have anything post deal that you look at or even maybe related to property management, like recommendations on what people should be structuring as they actually take over the property? Um, uh, what we do is we will recommend uh, groups if they need them. If someone buys a property and they want to do a cost seg study, um, we will help them you know, get in touch with a good cost segregation group. If they buy a property and they want to bring on a, a third-party manager, we will introduce them to two or three good management groups that we think do a good job that we would be talking to if it was our property. Um, if issues come up with a lease, if we can help review something or talk about it, we will. If we have to get an attorney involved, we will. Um, but a lot of times it's just being a sounding board. What are you dealing with? What's the issue? And, you know, for, for our company, we're long-term relationship people. And so, you know, if a, if a landlord sends you a letter um, and you don't know what's going on, we'll look at it. And to that exact point this morning, uh, a client that we do a couple, you know, dozen deals a year with, uh, sent us an email saying the landlord said to them, hey, you have to be out of the property at this date, yet they have a lease that goes beyond that date. And so my response to the, to the, the group was, request from the landlord what provision of the lease gives them the right to terminate your lease in advance and force you to vacate. And the answer they came back with was they don't have it. And so then, then now the response is, okay, great. Well, here's the deal we would be willing to consider moving out yes or no. And this group, these guys say we would because we want a different property. And so it's like, all right, great. So we'll get out of your space six months early. Um, but in exchange for the inconvenience of that, we are going to request that you guys don't charge us rent for our last three or four months rent. And if you really want us out earlier, because you're trying to renovate the entire property, you need everybody out. We can accommodate. There's got to be a concession. Otherwise we'll just stay in the space another, another year on top of it. And that would delay your project. So We'll do you a solid, but you got to treat us with respect as well. And so, yeah, back and forth, advice, great. Um, if it escalates, though, we're going to grab the attorney's 
Uh, if we need to get uh, an accountant involved for a triple net reconciliation, you grab those guys, recommend it, cost sag, you grab an expert. So um, always trying to help in any way we can. Sure. Uh, any final thoughts, anything that we haven't covered that you think is important for people to know? I mean, you've asked, you've asked really good questions. Um, I mean, I would just give the advice of hire an expert. I mean, find the people that, that know uh, the industry or the specialty or the area that you're looking for, whether that's a consultant, whether it's marketing, whether it's reimbursements and billing, whether it's real estate, find an expert and they will save you a ton of time. They should save you a significant amount of money. They should bring peace of mind to your decisions. And then you know enough to know who you want to pick, but you're not becoming an expert in that area. Don't become a real estate attorney, hire a real estate attorney. Don't become a tax specialist, get a good CPA group. Same thing for real estate, get a good partner and, and they're not going to take away your decision-making process. They're not going to, they're not going to make decisions for you. They're going to give you options and then you're going to stay at the helm, make the choices, um, but you're going to save a ton of time. Appreciate all the advice. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. If people want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to do so? Yeah, absolutely. The best way to get a hold of us is our website and that is car.us. So it's C-A-R-R.us. If you go there, you can find uh, a button that says, says find an agent. We have agents across the country. If you want a lease or purchase evaluation, we'll do that for free. If you want to get educated on, you know, glossary words in your lease or concepts or watch videos on commercial real estate, we've got literally hundreds of educational options for you. But yeah, we're happy to have a, a initial consult. We're happy to build a long-term relationship. Uh, if we're the right fit, awesome. If we're not, go find someone who will be the right fit for you, but don't take the do-it-yourself approach unless you want to lose a lot of time and money. <laughs> right. Well, I appreciate it for all our listeners out there. This is a recovery executive podcast. I'm your host, Nick Dworsky, and we'll see you guys next time.